Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm in Washington, D.C., and joining me from London are Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show today, the rise of the right-wing snowflakes, the battle for Hong Kong, and the new anti-Semitism. Why bother with a milkshake when you could get some battery acid? <laughs> but it was incitement to violence, inappropriate, dangerous, and I do think something needs to be done. So the press has to be responsible. Somebody will say, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. These are foolish people. Over the past few years, we've become all too used to hearing calls to curtail free speech in the name of political correctness. But in recent months, the anti-PC right has become just as censorious. In the US, Donald Trump has reiterated his support for a ban on burning the American flag, It follows his call in 2016 for anyone caught burning the flag to be jailed or have their citizenship rescinded. Other right-wingers, including Turning Point's Candace Owens, support the ban. And meanwhile, in the UK, Nigel Farage called for the police to investigate comedian Joe Brand after she joked that protesters should stop throwing milkshakes at right-wing politicians and throw battery acid instead. Uh, Tom, are the right turning into the kind of snowflakes that they claim to hate? Oh, definitely. And I think it's less a case that they're turning into those snowflakes is more the fact that they were probably those snowflakes to begin with and just been talking a pretty good game about free speech for the last few years purely for partisan reasons so as you talked about at the weekend trump tweeted favorably about this attempt by a republican senator from montana steve danes who wants an actual constitutional amendment banning flag burning trump said this was a no-brainer um, inviting a lot of mockery as it as it would um and really when you think about it flag burning is basically like it's kind of old school right-wing political correctness mm. <laughs> it's the one thing which is that is that sore spot for them. Um, now, this is something that Trump has talked about before. The thing that I suppose made it more of a story was that Turning Point USA's Candace Owens, as you said, got involved. Um, she actually said that the punishment for desecrating the flag should be the renunciation of citizenship. So mm. under President Owens, um, you'd have a year to liquidate your assets, get out <laughs> of the country, and then they would give the citizenship to a legal, hardworking immigrant. Now, of course, the whole flag burning thing is has been going on for a very long time. It's kind of been a wing nut, right winger obsession in the US. Way back into the 1960s, you first saw federal laws passed trying to restrict the desecration of flag in 1968. This kind of came after anti-Vietnam war demos. Mm. We often saw people burning the Stars and Stripes, um, various laws at the state level, a couple of Supreme Court decisions in the late 80s and early 90s kind of squashed it down. But, you know, this is something that's actually has always kind of been there. As recently as 2006, there was an attempt in the Senate that lost by one vote to get an amendment passed. Um, so what's kind of fascinating about this, I think, is the fact that it just reminds us that whilst over the course of maybe the past 10 years, over the campus battles, over all the discussions about Twitter mobbing, it has quite often been right-wingers who have found themselves in the crosshairs of censorship and therefore have been reaching for their Voltaire and their John Stuart Mill arguing for freedom of speech. I think things like this new discussion about a new constitutional amendment for the flag, as well as some of the stuff we've been seeing in Britain recently, shows how paper thin that attachment to freedom of speech actually was because the fact that something as kind of old school and kind of lame as flag burning can come back into the discussion I think shows Mm. how many people on the right really haven't come as far on the issue of freedom of speech as they might have liked to make out for some time. Ella? Yeah well I mean it's the kind of the classic uh, right-wing conservative sort of pearl clutching thing is to take offence. I mean like you say it is kind of an old school reaction and I don't think that's ever gone away. I mean it'll be a surprise to um, some people in the UK the 
reaction of Nigel Farage, head of the Brexit party, um, to that Joe Brand joke. Um, you know, I think he's done quite well over the last few years in uh, making a stand on freedom of speech. And then you have, I mean, the most ridiculous suggestion that this well-known comedian on a comedy show that was about heresy and pushing mm. boundaries. So Called it was, heresy. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a, a crystal clear what was going on. Uh, and then he says that the police should be called. I mean, it, it actually, not, it doesn't only just show the paper thin nature of the support for free speech among the right. What it also shows is that, uh, you know, the argument for freedom of speech not only has been lost by the left, but it's also been lost in general because it, it had never actually has taken hold because in the past it was always quite a radical left wing point. You know, it was something that was challenging the status quo. So challenging actual heresy laws, you know, fighting for the right to criticise the king, you know, all these things. It's never actually fully won. And it shows that we've still got quite a long way to go, that the fact that these right wingers have been able to piggyback off it for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years because the left is so dead. And yet it's almost like we're back uh, under the kind of blasphemy laws of saying that you just, you know, a joke about battery acids and milkshakes gets the police called. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting, as you're saying about Farage, you know, presents himself often as a defender of free speech. And he, he even made this comment several years ago that, you know, we're sort of sleepwalking into a society where people will be criminalized for jokes. And yet there he is calling for the criminalization of, of, of jokes. So that, I mean, for me, that's maybe a sad turn in, um, in Nigel Farage, but for someone like Donald Trump, I mean, in, in many ways, he is the, um, archetypal snowflake. You know, we, we can't really expect better from Donald Trump. He's incredibly thin skinned. He lashes out at all criticism. He believes himself to be persecuted, you know, regularly tweeting in all caps that um, he's suffering from presidential harassment just because, you know, <laughs> journalists are, are doing their job. So, you know, he is in many ways the, um, he's, he is the snowflake president in, in a lot of ways. No, completely. And I think, you know, this is the guy who said, people will say free speech, free speech. These are foolish people, you know. Yeah. So there's this kind of contradiction in the kind of culture warring right, the new right, insofar as they've really taken up the issue of political correctness. They've really taken up the issue of freedom of speech. But really what they're interested in is kind of a really narrow understanding of PC, insofar as them not being allowed to say what they want or this kind of new morality appearing, which they don't much want to have any thing to do with. But I think a figure like Trump is kind of inter interesting because in his really crass, self-interested, narcissistic way, he does still kind of show how there are many people on the right who can completely split apart the issue of political correctness from the issue of freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. They're almost two kind of completely separate things. But kind of what's interesting to me about, I think, the British example and the, um, and the Joe Brand case, which we've seen in the past week as well, is the fact that I think it's fair to say that someone like Nigel Farage at least made a, a bit of a better fist over the years of trying to look a little bit more principled and a little bit more serious on yeah. some of these topics. It's not like he made freedom of speech his great kind of creed occur, but it was still something that he would, as, you know, allegedly some kind of um, voice of the forgotten man and woman would um, perk up about from time to time. But the fact that he went really headlong into this, you know, he wasn't just saying when Joe Brand was um, first assessed by the police for this joke about um, acid attacking politicians, um, partly in reference to when he himself was was milkshaked recently. Not only did he just, he didn't just turn around and say, there you go, left-wingers, we told you so, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He said that this is unacceptable. On his radio show, someone, um, I remember when he was talking about this topic, someone texted in saying, you know, the price of living in a free society is you're going to be offended and if, if you put limits on free speech, it's not free speech. And he said something to the effect of, that's the most dangerous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, And it's just really, really fascinating because I get 
And we've got a lot of it in response to what we've written about this topic on Spike. So a lot of people are annoyed about the double standards. They're annoyed about the fact that Count Dankula can be, you know, given a sentence for allegedly inciting violence when, of course, he did nothing of the sort with that video of him and his dog, um, whereas at the same time, you know, the BBC could put this out without even batting an eyelid. I understand that. But what people are doing at the moment is not pointing out the double standard. They are kind of willfully enforcing the standard. Um, mm. And that's a very, very different thing. And the upshot of all of it will not be positive for anyone involved. It will just be about inviting the police more and more into policing jokes, literally jokes, um, and also giving more and more moral authority to places like the BBC to edit things, to cut things out when it's deemed to be too offensive um, by one particular group in society. That's not good for anyone. And the guy who rang into that radio show is a guy called Callum, who's an avid Spike podcast listener. Didn't so maybe <laughs> Farrah should start listening to our podcast before he goes on the radio. I think one of the other things that this proves is that it, the tool to censor is being used as a political weapon. I mean, we know this already, mm. but I don't think we quite realise the extent to which it's being used because it shows, you know, it's it's the obvious thing that if you say you can't say that, really what's happened is that you've lost the argument. You're not willing to take on the point of view because you're just, you just want to shut down the discussion. And the fact that both the left and the right are using it is uh, speaks to the kind of weird political situation we're in at the moment, in which there's so much happening, there's so much potential, and yet no no one really wants to get stuck in and have a debate and people are actually quite frightened by it. I mean, one of the other interesting examples uh, I think that you wrote about on Spiked Tom um, was the case of that woman with the, I mean, listeners will recognise her with the blonde bob from mm. the Trump, anti-Trump protest yeah. in London, who, you know, by all accounts lost her mind, it seemingly, and <laughs> really went for this kind of older guy and it was embarrassing and she was really abusive. Uh, but it was on, at a protest and a petition was started up with thousands signing, calling for her to lose her job at UCLH. I, I, you know, if someone to lose their job over being vocal at a protest, she didn't swing a punch. She just shouted in the guy's face. And that was Trump supporters and people who are sympathetic to Trump in the UK who were calling for that. Yeah. And, and yet again, you know, free speech falls by, by the wayside in the name of um, basically um, protecting people from offence, essentially. I thought that was really a really fascinating case as well, because just on the question of, again, double standards, because one thing that, that's been really interesting is just seeing so many people on the right, or at least the kind of un-PC set, using mirror image arguments mm. that the left would usually use against people yeah. they just they dislike so in the case of this woman i think her name was siobhan pridgen um they were making the case look she wasn't some lowly nurse working at ucl you know she had this quite relatively well-paid consultancy job etc these are the very same people who, who when say a newspaper columnist gets banned from a university they're saying it doesn't matter how you know well known they are this is about the principle you know yeah. in the same way that when or for instance when roger scruton lost that position in that government quango um, about architecture over completely misquoted comments in the new statesman um, again people were saying it doesn't matter how prominent he is it doesn't matter f- that the fact he hasn't been crushed under the jackboot of the state here the principle is freedom of speech we should be against twitter mobbing mm. and yet in this instance they were quite willing to throw this out the window and in this case we should remember for a private citizen someone who did just show up act a bit of an idiot got a bit carried away just think that the last couple of weeks have been really clarifying as far as showing how fragile freedom of speech is because whilst it may have some kind of supporters and kind of fellow travellers for a while depending on who happens to be the target of censorship at any point in time um, it's there's far few people it feels like who actually understand it and want to defend it on the point of principle and I think that's what we've seen recently You're listening to the Spike Podcast If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show.
Last Sunday, nearly 2 million protesters gathered in Hong Kong to protest against a controversial extradition bill. The bill would undermine Hong Kong's freedoms and its autonomy in relation to China. It followed a million-strong march the previous Sunday and another major demonstration outside the Legislative Council on Wednesday. Thanks to huge public pressure, the bill was eventually suspended. To find out more about the protests, I caught up with Anthony Dapiran via Skype. Dapiran is the author of City of Protest, a recent history of dissent in Hong Kong. He'd been at the protests all week. On Monday, he was standing outside the government offices with other protesters. I started off by asking him what it meant that the extradition bill had been suspended. After the big protest yesterday on Sunday, the, the government issued another announcement um, Firstly, in which the, the chief executive apologised of, of a sort for what had happened and also reiterating that the, the she didn't say the bill has been withdrawn. She said the bill has been, um, you know, put on hold with no timetable for it to be resumed. And I think that really is code for saying it's withdrawn. And I think for all, all practical purposes, we can't see it coming back again. It's important to bear in mind that we've got um, uh, elections are due here next year, September. Um, and you know, given that it's withdrawn, even by the time they, if they did want to restart the process and do it with a proper public consultation and avoid public outrage, there's no way they can do that in the course of the next 12 months and have a hope of it getting through. So I think we have to assume, for all practical purposes, that this whole thing's been put on hold. In you know, is, is, is dead, basically. And what was the protesting like? It was huge. I mean, look, everyone, the week before was huge. Everyone already thought that was sort of bigger than something anyone expected to see. And then Sunday, you know, it could have gone either way. You know, we'd had all the violence of Wednesday, obviously, which was an outrage. But then the chief executive did make a statement on, on Saturday night sort of saying, look, things are on hold and tried to diffuse people's diffuse people's anger. Um, and there was a possibility that people said, look, we were out a million strong last week. We've made our point. Why do we need to come out again? But it seems that the week's events, I think in particular the police violence on Wednesday and then the chief executive seeming arrogant in sort of refusing to apologise and, and, you know, refusing to sort of give much ground to the protesters just made even more people come out. I mean, so, you know, Sunday, you, you, trying to head out, you know, mid-afternoon, mid middle of the day, all the public transportation systems were completely rammed full of people wearing black. Um, you know, all the trains, all the buses, all the ferries, um, it was quite a sight to behold. You just sort of step out of your front door and sort of, um, you know, in, into into a subway station, and you're just in a mass of humanity, all in black t-shirts, and they they filled the streets. I mean, there's a traditional per, sort of marching route that goes, you know, winds its way through the middle of Hong Kong Island along a road called Hennessy Road, um, which is uh, what's that? It's about six six lanes, three lanes in each direction or so. And normally, you know, on, on a big march, that is completely full. Um, yesterday, not only that road, but every other road parallel. So there was one, two, three, four, five other roads running running parallel to that road were all simultaneously full of people. So it was it was really a um, yeah it was something quite incredible to behold. And, and that that march went on for for a good eight hours nonstop. Um, and so just you know, and just such a, a a strong spirit in the crowd too. People were so united. There was such a strong sense of camaraderie, a kind of anger, but also. Um, also a bit of euphoria as well to see each other and to see the power of, of, of the people and I think knowing that, 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 that they were going to be successful. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very, you know, ultimately a very moving um, and, and, and awe-inspiring sign. How large were these protests in relation to other protests in Hong Kong? The, the, the only other 
protest that compares to it in scale was when Hong Kongers marched um, in 1989 in support of the, the students in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. They say that uh, back then 1.4 to 1.5 million came out. I think by the time you're getting to to numbers like that, is it 1 million, is it 1.5 million, is it 2 million? It's, it's pretty hard to have any kind of a scientific estimate. But I think, you know, the, the, any way you put it, it's a very substantial portion of the population and, you know, really expressing their, their views with, with, with their feet and with their bodies in, in the public space. Is there a common thread between the protests of the 1980s in relation to Tiananmen Square and the protests of today? And um, yeah, and a shameless plug. But if you care to read my book, um, I make the argument in there. Um, but to summarise it, um, <laughs> to summarise it, um, it's, it's, I think it's all about Hong Kong identity, and it's all about Hong Kong as having a distinct identity from the rest of China. Um, you know, people in Hong Kong um, value the rights and freedoms that they have that aren't enjoyed elsewhere in China. Um, and they value the fact that, you know, Hong Kong is under a sort of, you know, one country, two systems arrangement, given its own unique identity, um, you know, part of, but apart from the rest of China. And they want to keep that. At any time there's anything that threatens, threatens that, um, you know, threatens to, um, you know, curtail those rights or freedoms or, or, or in some way threatens that, that unique, distinct Hong Kong identity, people in Hong Kong have a very visceral reaction to that. So that was the case. You know, now with this law, which was threatening to sort of blur the lines between the Hong Kong and the mainland um, judicial systems, um, that was that was the case in 2003 when um, the national security law was proposed, um, and and it was also the case in 2011, 2012 when um, students were protesting against the proposed national education curriculum that was going to be sort of compulsory mainland focused civics education for students in Hong Kong, which they saw as brainwashing and trying to sort of. Um, you know, inculcate the mainland culture in, in, in them. Um, and so going back to Tiananmen Square, I think that was, you know, again, anxiety was before the handover, obviously, um, and just anxiety about what would come, what would become of Hong Kong and, and what would become of the rights and freedoms and the Hong Kong way of life after the handover. I think in all cases, you know, Hong Kongers are expressing this anxiety over their identity. I think um, that was really noticeable in um, the slogan that the protesters were chanting yesterday. Among the various slogans they chanted, which were demanding, um, you know, the various concrete political actions, like withdrawing the bill and for the chief executive Carrie Lam to resign. The other thing they were chanting was Hong Kong Yang which means you know, go Hong Kongers. Um, you know, just sort of this, this expression of community and identity that was really, really very powerful. So the protesters have clearly won a big victory in relation to this extradition bill, but isn't the broader trend pointing towards you know further integration with China and less autonomy for Hong Kong? Put it this way: um, you know, the mainland is never going to get less important to Hong Kong. Now, I'm sure mainland China is, is big; its, its influence is growing all over the world. You know, Hong Kong is, is closest to mainland China. It's just inevitable that mainland. Mainland money and mainland influence is, is going to continue to have a growing presence in Hong Kong. Um, the, and the question is how to balance that against the, you know, the, the desire of Hong Kongers to at the same time retain their own identity. So, yeah, um, you know, the long-term trend is to, you know, some degree or other, more integration with mainland China. I think the, the question and the thing that people are really arguing about is on what terms will that happen. And is it not the case that even without this bill, even without a formal extradition treaty, uh, isn't it just common practice for when Beijing wants to arrest someone, they simply just go into Hong Kong and kidnap them? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think the, the reality is that if there's someone here that they want, 
um, they they will just take them. And I think especially if they are uh, mainlanders, like, you know, BRC citizens, I think they'd be much, you know, obviously they have done that. They did that with Gwen Min Hai, who is a Swedish citizen, um, and they did that not even in Hong Kong, but out of Thailand, a third country, which is incredibly brazen. Um, but, um, you know, in Hong Kong, I think which they see as part of Chinese territory, if there's a Chinese citizen here that they want, um, I, I think they wouldn't hesitate in, in taking them across the border, as indeed they did with um, a fugitive businessman, Xiao Jianhua, um, a year or two ago. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, maybe that's one of the concerns about this extradition bill, but it would have given a, a, vene- a veneer of legitimacy to something that, you know, may be happening anyway. But why should we, um, you know, Hong Kong, think, why should we allow this to be done through our justice system in a way that you know, makes it look legitimate when, when you know, to many people's point of view, it isn't? Joshua Wong, the Umbrella Movement activist, has just been released from prison. How significant do you think this is in relation to these protests? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a coincidence of timing, actually, um, and, and a very unfortunate coincidence for the government. But he's really a key figurehead and a key spokesperson for the youth generation and activists in Hong Kong. Um, you know, uh, one notable difference between now and the Umbrella Movement protest is that protesters have been very careful not to have a clearly identified leader um, just because the government's been prosecuting them so aggressively. Um, so I don't know if we're going to see Joshua playing exactly the same role that he did in 2014 in terms of, you know, sort of coordinating the movement. But look, certainly he's going to be very active. He's already, you know, done it. He got out of jail this morning, did a press conference, um, you know, had some very clear messages. So the government um, went from there to, you know, down to meet with the protesters, the r- protesters who'd remained outside the Legislative Council. And I think he's giving every, every indication that he intends to be very active in Hong Kong's political life. So, you know, having that kind of articulate, uh, charismatic spokesperson for, um, for uh, you know, for, 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 for Hong Kong's protesters and activists is um, certainly something that's going to be, going to be galvanising for them and, and of great concern to the government. And finally, um, are you optimistic about Hong Kong's future? Look, it's, it, uh, in some ways, looking at the spirit and determination of the Hong Kong people and the sense of community and everything they've displayed this week, how can you be anything but optimistic? Um, so, you know, that's something that really, you know, gives me great cause for optimism. Um, as to, you know, how they fare under Beijing's rule, that, that's an ongoing, I guess, an ongoing push and pull relationship. Um, you know, there's, there's you know, certainly, um, you know, difficulties that, that they face and, and some of that impacts on on the economy, some of that impacts on the community. And, and, and look, certainly there's huge problems in terms of, you know, social inequality and um, you know, housing and healthcare and all those kind of things in Hong Kong. And to be honest, they're the kind of problems that people want the government to be focusing on, not, you know, not sort of political things like, you know, extradition laws and the like. Um and, you know, I think part of the people's grievance yesterday that got them out is, is not only you know, everything else that we're aware of, but also that, you know, the government doesn't appear to be a government, you know, for its people looking at these, you know, important welfare and quality of life issues for them that they really want their government to be looking at. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spikes, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. And if you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spikes-online.com.
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez caused a stir this week when she referred to the US government's migrant detention centres as concentration camps. She also evoked the rallying cry of Holocaust memorial campaigns by saying, never again. Critics of Ocasio-Cortez say she was diminishing the horrors of the Holocaust, wittingly or unwittingly engaging in Holocaust relativism. In recent months also, the New York Times published a blatantly anti-Semitic cartoon, Hollywood actor John Cusack posted an anti-Semitic tweet, while Democratic Congresswoman Ilan Omar has made a number of anti-Semitic remarks. Tom, could you tell us first a bit about these concentration camp remarks and, and how this might fit into the kind of new anti-Semitism that we seem to be seeing a lot of? Definitely. So, of course, we should start off by saying that anything involving AOC is want to kind of catch the media cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and anytime she kind of slips up or says that kind of gaff, you know, that's always going to be something which everyone's talking about on Twitter for days and days and days. But I think this is actually really significant. And it hints at, as you were talking about, Fraser, this quite insidious new trend in the background of politics at the moment. First of all, to kind of constantly invoke the Holocaust just as a means of settling schools, you know, in the present, particularly trying to present Trump and the Trump administration as some kind of Nazi throwback in a pretty um, low kind of way. But also how this contributes, as Brendan wrote about on Spike this week, to this kind of relativization of the Holocaust, which you see happening more on the kind of fringes of politics, but is actually really quite dangerous. So she was on Instagram Live. She made these comments talking about these detention centres on the southern border. She called them concentration camps. She invoked never again, as you say. And also a less discussed part of this is at the very end, she called Trump a fascist. Mm. So this is something which on the one hand, people responded to saying this was really historically illiterate, insensitive, even some leading Democrats criticised her. You then got this incredibly disingenuous kind of response, both from AOC and her supporters, making these really kind of finicky distinctions saying, well, she didn't mean Nazi concentration camps, you know, and all she sharing the same article talking about the fact that there are other concentration camps through history, etc. But we all knew what it is that she was gesturing to, Mm. you know, not least because of her reference to Never Again and also her reference to Trump being a fascist. What this contributes to is this thing that you see increasingly in some corners of the left and also amongst Islamists, is this attempt to suggest that the Holocaust basically wasn't that big a deal. It was kind of one horrible thing amongst the midst of other things. Mm. And that this attempt to really take what was, you know, the greatest crime of the 20th century, the most horrendous, mechanized, factory-like attempt at trying to wipe um, a group of people off the face of the earth. And just to say it was kind of one atrocity amongst many. You see this particularly in relation to Israel. You see this horrendous accusation that the reason the Jews cling to the Holocaust so much is to try to excuse the actions, the Nazi-like activities of Israel in the present. Mm. And as Brendan was saying, it's kind of a close cousin of Holocaust denial in a sense, because if you relativize the Holocaust, if you turn it into something more routine, then the Holocaust loses its potency. So that's really the background. Now, I wouldn't for a second say that this is something that AOC was necessarily wittingly kind of participating in, that she set out to try to um, undermine the uh, memory of the Holocaust and contribute to this very ugly anti-Semitic politics on the fringes. But I think people were very right to call her out because that Holocaust relativism wrapped up in a kind of anti-Zionism, which for all intents and purposes looks a lot like anti-Semitism, is something which is very real, growing. And I don't think anyone in a position of authority should be doing anything to contribute towards that. Yeah. 
Ella? Well, it's also it's just incredibly lazy. I mean, there you, there's ample vocabulary to criticise the detention centres. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're horrific. They're politically incoherent. They're not working. I mean, you can make any criticism of them, but to do what AOC did, and she actually consciously in the video says, you know, I'm not just throwing bombs out here. I'm not just using these words, you know, willy nilly. I actually really mean them. So you think, okay, well, if you actually do really mean them, well, then you should be able to take the criticism of the fact that they are historically illiterate. Yeah. And I mean, the, the attempt to explain away the use of the word concentration camps was also, you know, it's not just disingenuous, but it was an outright lie. It's the same as saying, you know, oh, I use the N word, but I used it in the Jay-Z context yeah. you know, rather than the, the, the racist context. It's a word which has a particular meaning. And if you use the word concentration camps, everyone thinks Nazi. I mean, that's just the case. And so whether or not you meant some obscure one, that's what is insinuated. And it's ridiculous to suggest that she didn't know otherwise. So there's that kind of lazy element to it. But I think the other side of it is more sinister. And I think some of the examples that you mentioned, Fraser, I've been trying to wrap my head around. So the recent tweet by John Cusack, formerly one of my favourite actors, Mm. um, was horrific, (laughs) blatantly anti-Semitic, dripping in anti-Semitism. It was a big fist with a diamond ring on the pinky, crushing people with a Star of David on it. And he had helpfully captioned, in case you didn't quite realise what that was meant to insinuate, follow the money in his tweet. Mm. And it reminded me of a similar situation that happened a while back in relation to the uh, Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, commenting his support under a post, which was a picture of uh, a bunch of people with hooked noses playing Monopoly on the backs of uh, people being crushed with Illuminati signs in the background. I mean, that isn't lazy. That is anti-Semitic. And you can't get away with saying that this is just, you know, a part of a pro-Palestine thing, or this is just a criticism of Israel. That is anti-Semitic. And the thing that I can't wrap my head around is that discussion about racism or Islamophobia, all of these things that are happening get so much airtime. And also it's always the little people that are doing it. So, you know, the stupid little people working class in Britain are racist. Anti-Semitism is, you know, most of the time perpetuated by the upper echelons of society. So it's your celebrities, it's your Mel Gibsons, it's your MPs. It's people who are can not hide behind not being well-educated, who can't hide behind being ignorant. And it is fascinating, that kind of double standard as well in relation to how much or any discussion around kind of race or people's use of language, etc. You know, there's a lot of people on the left who are so concerned with that issue, they actually often take it too far. You know, as we talk about many times in this podcast, seeing racism where it doesn't exist, etc. Yeah. In the case of anti-Semitism, and we've talked about this loads of times, the gloves come off entirely. Like in the AOC case, Yad Vashem, which is the Israeli memorial to the Holocaust, tweeted at her saying, not really condemning her necessarily, but just linking to some more information. And then you had the hilarious spectacle of all these kind of AOC fanboys and girls just trying to dunk on the Israeli Holocaust memorial organisation, saying, no, it's not, sending pictures from the southern border. You think, what? What the hell is going on here? Similarly, I think in the John Cusack incident, it was fascinating that he tried to defend this tweet for the longest amount of time. You know, there wasn't this kind of instant apology. And then, of course, later on, he blamed a bot, which is ridiculous because, as Ella just mentioned, he captioned it himself. So (laughs) on the one hand, you have this kind of huge sensitivity to language and race, which Mm. usually exists on the left and the liberal left. Um, and the general intelligentsia goes completely out the window. And then also you have this much higher level of defensiveness when it comes through. And it just, you can't, and I think what that really points to is that, that there is a very specific blind spot on the left where anti-Semitism is concerned. And I think a large part of it is, and I think you see this reflected in the John Cusack example, is that unfortunately anti-Semitism 
and anti-Zionism have almost become indistinguishable at this point. They use exactly the same tropes. Anti-Zionism today effectively resurrects a lot of the old anti-Semitic um, ideas of the past, whether it's the blood libel, whether it's the idea of Jews controlling the world. And because those two things have become so mixed up and because for a very long time there's been a refusal to actually call people out on this, you get in a situation where a Hollywood actor of an evening almost unthinkingly tweets something which looks like it could have come out of the pages of Der Sturmer. It's fascinating, but yeah. really, you know, terrifying at the same time that things have gotten as bad as all this. And, and we've, we referred to this on Spiked as, you know, the rise of accidental anti-Semitism, where there's just this, as you say, this blind spot, this oversight. And a key example for me of that recently was in the New York Times, where in the international edition, they um, published this very, you know, clearly anti-Semitic cartoon of um, a blind Donald Trump being led by a Benjamin Netanyahu poodle with the, you know, Star of David on it. And it's it's been interesting to see the the New York Times' own response to that because now they've said that they're not going to print any more political cartoons anymore. It's almost as if they, they feel that there's no way that they could possibly um, prevent themselves from accidentally um, printing an anti-Semitic cartoon. Well, there's a really interesting exhibition actually at the moment at the Jewish Museum, which is in Camden in London, uh, which is it's quite a daring exhibition actually. It's called Jews and Money and Myth. But it's, it's specifically tackling this sort of weird fact that people are continuously being accidentally anti-Semitic by conflating the idea, this very old anti-Semitic trope of Jews being moneylenders and Jews running the world banks and the Rothschilds and all this kind of stuff. And it's a really harrowing exhibition to walk through, actually, because it's got some really hateful stuff in there. But one of the important things that you come out with is kind of realizing your own ignorance that actually quite a lot of contemporary culture is soaked in a certain level of underlying anti-Semitism, but also the importance of not stopping, you know, posting political cartoons and not clamping down on it. We talk about free speech a lot on this podcast. And I think the one thing that would be wrong to react to this is to try and censor, because actually, as we see in different parts of the world where, for example, Holocaust denial has been banned mm. um, or people have been clamping down on that kind of discussion, it grows like a kind of, like a disease. Yeah. So I think actually part of the problem is we haven't been calling out anti-Semitism. We haven't been talking about it. And that's why you get people kind of looking shocked and saying, really? I was anti-Semitic for claiming that the Rothschilds are still running the world finances. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com.